Welcome to episode 39 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And today we have a special guest with us, Mike Deerolf from MongoDB. He's a lead development of PyMongo. Jason uh, got in touch with Mike, so I'll just just hand over to, to, to Jason from this point. Yeah, so I, 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 I guess I sent an email to the CEO of MongoDB. I just kind of guessed his email address because <laughs> uh, I, wa- I wanted to talk to somebody uh, from Mongo or from TenGen, I guess you should say, about MongoDB because um, this whole NoSQL movement it keeps gaining traction. It, it, it seems to be getting a lot of attention and sort of transforming the landscape of things. And I keep seeing it pop up on Hacker News. I'm like, well, we need to talk to somebody over at TenGen to find out what the what the story is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, I guess whoever it was over at uh, TenGen said that you were the guy to talk to, Mike. Yes. Yeah, so I've I've, uh, I've done a couple of podcasts here talking about MongoDB and and what we're working on over at TenGen. So I, I guess that's how my my name popped into things. Great. So. I, I guess um, I think we should probably start off is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you're the lead developer of PyMongo, which I, I guess is the Py, Python uh, bindings binding to the Mongo database. Right. Yeah. Yeah. PyMongo is like a like the Python driver from for MongoDB. Okay. And you know what's your well? Okay. Let's take one step back. MongoDB is a key value database or a document database. How would you even describe it in terms of this sort of new NoSQL landscape? So we're we're grouping uh, MongoDB in as a document database, um, and what that means is that what you're actually storing when you store data in MongoDB are rich JSON-style documents. So these documents can have keys and values. They can also have embedded nested documents, um, embedded arrays of, of documents or values. So pretty much anything you can think of that you would represent in JSON, you can, you can store in MongoDB as a document. And, and that's a, there's sort of a difference there between that and, and a key value store. In a key value store, the data model is a little bit simpler. Um, you just have a single key and a value. Even if that value is, is JSON, generally the, the database doesn't um, understand the value and know how to reach into it and do things like build secondary index design. Um, whereas in MongoDB, with the document model, we can still build secondary indexes. We can still do queries on embedded documents and, and leverage all sorts of nice functionality there. Okay, so it seems like there's a lot of contenders now in this movement. We have Couch, you have Cassandra, you have... Uh, I don't know Hadoop, you have Redis, Tokyo Cabinet. I mean, just the, those are ones that pop my head. Um, where are all these in the relationship? Wh- which ones are which, and which ones are? I mean, I know Couch is a document, right? Document uh, database store, right? Right. Yes, CouchDB is also a document database. Um, the data model there is simil- very similar to MongoDB. So they actually store JSON. We store this binary format called BSON, stands for binary JSON. Um, but it's capable of representing pretty much anything you'd represent with JSON plus a couple additional data types for, for dates and stuff. But overall, the, the data model is very similar between Couch and Mongo. I think the big difference there is, is in how you query between the two of those. Okay. And, uh, okay, now, ten, now TenGen is a company whose primary product is MongoDB, is that right? But right. MongoDB so, itself is a is sort of an open source project. Right. As well? So so MongoDB is completely open source. So the server is licensed under the AGPL, 
and all of the drivers that we develop at 10Gen are licensed under the Apache 2. Um, and, and so there's a, a large open source community, vibrant open source community built around that. And then 10Gen, uh, which sponsors the development of MongoDB, a lot of the core developers are working for 10Gen, and the project was actually started within 10Gen. Um, 10Gen is a startup company in New York, and what we provide is support, training, and, and other services behind the MongoDB ecosystem. Okay. Was, was Tangen's primary business driver MongoDB right from the outset? No, that's actually a good question. So when, when Tangen was first started, Tangen was started in the end of 2007, um, maybe October of 2007. And when Tangen was first started, we were working on um, basically a full-stack cloud computing platform. So you can think of it as sort of like Google App Engine. It was uh, consisted of a database, uh, an application server, and a load balancer, and a couple other tools and, and libraries. Um, and that was, that was open source as well. And we worked on that for, for all of, you know, the remainder of 2007 and all of 2008. And we just weren't seeing the adoption that, that we would have liked with, with that project. Um, and so right at the end of 2008, we decided to sort of step back and look at what we had built. And we decided that sort of the most interesting thing we had built was this database that was, that was sort of integrated with this platform. So we took the database out. We named it MongoDB. We wrote a bunch of drivers for it, and we released it as a standalone project. And I, I think within a couple of weeks, we saw as much interest in that as we had seen in this, this full-stack platform in the entire previous year. So I think in retrospect, it was definitely a, a great decision. That's, that's just really shows that when you build a company, <laughs> so often you can just go sideways on a tangent and your real product comes from something that you didn't expect, you know? And Def definitely. I think, you know, just shows the important thing is to, uh, to be working on something you're passionate about and, and what, you know, things, things will fall out in the end. I, I had another question. Um, I know that, that there's a lot of, um, really great, uh, uh, let's say, uh, rhetoric about no, no SQL, but there's also an emerging movement of, let's say, um, anti-NoSQL. Anti for example, I, I recently read a, a blog entry, I Can't Wait for NoSQL to Die, by <laughs> Ted DeZuba. And I just wondered what you thought about people um, you know, bringing up that, that aspect of things. Yeah, so I, I saw that blog. I, I thought it was sort of funny. Um, yeah, I think there's, there are a lot of great reasons to take offense um, or, or to not be thrilled about the NoSQL movement. I think, uh, first of all, I think that none of us here at, at Tengen would agree with, um, with the terminology there. So NoSQL is sort of a, a misnomer in that, in that for, for two reasons. First of all, it, it sort of implies this contention between uh, a relational database and, and what we're doing or between what we're working on and, and SQL as a query language, which I think is um, sort of an imaginary debate, right? There, there are use cases for a relational database and there are use cases for these non-relational databases. And, and you know, there's, there's some overlap there, but there's also some, you know, distinction there between those use cases. So, so it's certainly possible to use both a relational database and a non-relational database in the same project. And, uh, and conversely, it's also, 
you know, you could imagine mapping a query language like SQL onto a non-relational database. So, so, so we don't hate SQL. I think SQL is a great query language. We've just decided not to implement it so far. We, we've developed our own query language. And, um, and so, so I think there's a, a lot of sort of artificial contention there. The other thing with NoSQL is that it, it sort of groups a bunch of projects um, that, that don't necessarily have all that much in common. So within all of these, these NoSQL databases, there's a lot of, a lot of differentiating factors as well. So, so I think people need to be careful when they look at the NoSQL space to look at individual products within that space rather than accepting or rejecting NoSQL as a whole. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's silly to just tar everything with the same brush and um, also to, to kind of make decisions about something before you've actually used it and before you've tested it. Right. Uh, um, I mean, coming on from that, just one more question, Jason. I know you've probably got something to another question, but I just want to. <laughs> and I'm pretty much done. I think good uh, <laughs> <make a> show. <laughs> um, so one other one other question was. Um, so if you just use a single table in MySQL, that's sort of approaching the, the NoSQL um, paradigm. Um, why why would I not do that? For example, why would I use MongoDB over doing something like that? Okay, so, so that, that brings up a, a good point, like a good general discussion topic, which is what's sort of the motivating factor behind these, these NoSQL databases. And I think one thing that most of them have in common is that, that one of the goals is to have a scalable architecture, an architecture that's easy to scale out horizontally. And, and there are basically two things that make that difficult to do with most relational databases. The first is joins. So doing distributed joins is a really hard problem to solve. And the second is complex multi-row transactions. So again, doing these multi-row transactions with rollbacks is very difficult to do right when you're distributed across nodes. So I think that um, most of these systems are, are basically giving at least those two things up. So, so they're saying, we're just not going to support joins and we're not going to support arbitrary multi-row multi transactions. And that's the case with MongoDB. Um, but then once you've, once you've accepted that, once you've given up on the relational model, uh, then I think there's, you're presented with this opportunity to sort of take a step back and see, hey, now that we're giving up on this, is there any improvements that we can make in the data model to make it easier to work with and more flexible for developers? And I think with MongoDB, what we've done is we've, we've replaced this row-based model with the document model. And I think that gives uh, developers a lot of power. So, yeah, you, could, you can use a relational database sort of like you would use one of these, sort of like you would use MongoDB by not doing any joins or not doing any complex transactions. But I think you, what you're doing is you're losing the power that this document model gives you. Uh, the the flexibility that you get with that. I also saw that MongoDB does auto sharding as well, so um, that's something that's you're not going to get built into someone something like MySQL. Sure, right. So so not only is you know there's two parts to the scaling story. So first, in order to have a scalability scalable architecture, you need to give up on those two properties. But then second, you actually need to implement the, the uh, logic to distribute data and. So MongoDB provides an auto sharding functionality to, to do that, to basically transparently 
handle scaling out and adding new nodes and, and dividing up your data across them. Now, one important note to listeners is that auto sharding in MongoDB is currently in alpha. So it works now. There's there's still a couple of hiccups. So um, it's it's definitely it's our, our number one focus right now. So uh, it's definitely something to watch closely. It seems to me, I mean, the, that auto sharding, you know, if you really get that built tight and 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 work and really sort of tested and working that that is just going to be an amazing amazing advantage of using something like mongodb because people truly will have the instant scalability that hasn't been possible before yeah i, I definitely agree i think this is uh i think it's going to be a great feature i think i think um i also think it's important to note that there's a lot of people out there who are using MongoDB who don't need scale. So there's a lot of people using it on a single node or on a couple of nodes with replication, which which is already uh, built into MongoDB out of the box and um, and using it quite happily. So I think there are a lot of advantages, a lot of things to be gained in terms of developer flexibility and productivity, uh, even when you're not scaling out to huge sizes. But yeah, certainly the the auto sharding stuff is going to be is going to be a big feature. I think. <laughs> So what you know? I remember reading, or uh, I maybe was, I saw a video of one of the, the um, I think it was either the founders or the primary developers at FriendFeed, and they talked about their approach, which Justin sort of alluded to, which is using a single table where you have essentially one uh, column other than maybe an ID, which was the document stored as JSON, right? And that's what they did. And you said that, and I, I just want to understand. Why do you think they did that versus using something like Mongo? Is it because, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, whenever they were doing this stuff, uh, Mongo and, and, and Couch and the other document data stores weren't mature enough? Or, you know, just kind of explain what the advantages are to using other than, I guess, auto sharding, which is one advantage. Um, so, but what are the advantages to using Mongo or to, to doing that approach? As opposed to... Um you know, single stuffing a document as, as JSON or some other encoding into yeah. a, a column. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. Because it, it, according to you know the the developer, I think like I said, I think it was a co-founder, one of the co-founders of FriendFeed, and he said that you know the biggest problems is like when you're you're setting re indexing, you're re-indexing the database, and you'd have like this like massive. It would be this really big deal, it's a very scary process when you have a huge database like uh, FriendFeed had. And you have to re-index it, or if you needed to change the scheme in any way, and so that's why they just said, "All right, screw it. We're not going. We're just going to use one table, and we're going to create another index on that. Will just be a different table that will point into it." Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading that post. So I think um, I, I have to imagine that a lot of the reasoning there, with with why they sort of rolled their own solution to this problem, is is probably. Because some of these products weren't quite as mature or weren't as well known, uh, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago when that that post went out. Um, I don't remember the exact date of it, but I, I, I definitely think that there are some huge advantages to using something like Mongo that understands the data. So what I mean by that is when you take a a JSON style document. Um, which which is represented different in each programming language. So if you're using Python, it would be a dictionary. If you're using Ruby, it would be a hash. Uh, in PHP, it would be an associative array. When you take a document and insert it into Mongo, that gets encoded to this, this BSON format and sent across the wire. 
And then the, the database server actually just takes that document and it also understands the BSON format. So it can reach in, in there and look up specific fields and values. It can update indexes on embedded fields and values. And, and after updating indexes, it can just basically write that BSON document to disk. That's how thing, that's, that's the representation of documents on disk as well. Um, but, but yeah, the nice thing there is that then you're able to do queries, which maybe you didn't even see that you would need in advance uh, on embedded documents. So I could have a, a person document with an array of addresses, for example. And I could query where person.address.street is Broadway. And that would work well. Um, and, and doing something like that, doing a query like that, when you're just storing these nested structures as a blob, is going to be a lot trickier. Right. So if, um, if, if, I'm, if I'm creating some, a, a, you know, a database structure, you know, like you said, let, let, let's say we have an example of um, you know, the author, publisher, books model that you some, that's sometimes used to explain relational databases. Right. Um, a publisher has many authors, an author has many books, books have, can have one or more authors, things like that. And so you have these variety of relationships and you have you know, these various tables, so, you know, your, your author's table, your book's table, your publisher's table, I don't know, um, and, your, and, maybe, and maybe your join tables. Now, if you're doing something like that in MongoDB, you want to create this, this equivalent structure so that you can not only query and say, okay, give me all the books for this author, give me all the authors for this book, or give me all the books for this publisher. I mean, is all of that stuff done easily and naturally with MongoDB, or, or is that going to be a problem? Because it's not, it's not so easily like, well, it's just a person who has a couple addresses and those are stored in the document. Is that sort of, I guess what you're referring to as secondary indexes going to take care of all of that very easily? Right, so so that's um that's a good point. So so one of the things that sort of comes along with this this added power to represent things as embedded documents. I use the addresses example, is that it it also gives you another decision to make. So when you go to decide how to represent your schema, you have to decide: Do I want to represent this as an embedded document, or do I want to give this its own top-level collection, which is the MongoDB equivalent of a table, and then basically do the equivalent of a join across across collections when I want to say get all authors for a given book. Um, and, and that's it's definitely important uh, consideration when you're designing a schema. I would say for things like an author or for things like an address where there's really not too much duplication there to begin with and it's not going to be accessed on its own that often, I would say just embed it. Same goes for comments on a blog post. But for your example, with, with an author and, uh, and books and publishers, each of those three things might be, depending on the application, you know, top level. It might be at frequently accessed on its own, updating fields on their own. And, and so in that case, it, it probably makes more sense to, to represent things more similarly to how you would do it within a, with a relational database. So give each their own collection and then be, do client-side joins to get down the related documents. Now, one nice thing about that uh, that, that makes that really easy to do in Mongo is that because you can have embedded arrays, you no longer need the equivalent of a join table pretty much ever. So my author could have an embedded array of book IDs and you can just store that right in the document. 
Right. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, okay. I, I just want to ask a couple more questions about this, so I so I understand. Now, let's say you have you have books and you have authors, and you're you're doing some kind of a lookup on you know books for authors or or, or whatever. And um, now, if you're if you're in one sense looking at a publisher and say we want to list a look of all of our authors, we have thousands and thousands of authors, we have thousands of or tens of thousands of books. Um, in that case, would those be just two top level collections? In which case. When you are asking for that information, you're doing a client-side joint on two different collections that have you know, potentially tens of thousands of, in, of, in, of individual uh, entries. So the query you're doing there is give me all authors for a publisher? Oh, I'm sorry. One sec, guys. I'm trying to turn off my phone. Uh, anyway, yeah, okay. Sorry about that. Um, now my question is, I guess I don't have a specific query in mind. I'm just sort of imagining you said these client-side joins. Um, I'm just wondering, when you do client-side joins, are you running into a problem where if you have two tables that have some sort of relationship? He, and, he, he, Jason, I, yeah. the client-side joins is a bit of a mis, misnomer because, I mean, <laughs> look, here's me never having worked on it, but I'm saying, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I understand what it is. Essentially, it's it's a collection of IDs, and then you're essentially um, individually, or maybe collect it, like doing a, a multiple query. But you're requerying MongoDB, and then right. doing a second pull back. So it's not like something happens in the in the one select. It's a second select that your client makes. Right. So so the idea is, let's say I have I have an author document uh, in memory on my in my client application code, and and that document contains a list of IDs of books that I've written. Or that that author has written, then I can do a second query for all books in the on the books collection for all books where the the author ID is, or where the book ID is in this list of IDs, and and that's how I do something like that. And and I Jason, I think another thing that could kind of highlight the use of, of a database like this, say for example, you in a traditional uh, relational system, you had um, a user table. And your site, you know, on your site, let's say you were building PayPal, right? So on PayPal, they've got users, and then each user can have multiple bank accounts, multiple email addresses, multiple nicknames or whatever. So traditionally what you'd do is you'd have another three tables, right? So you'd have a bank accounts table, an email table, and a nickname table, and then you join them all. But here with the embedded document style, what you do is you'd have one user collection, and then for every record that you – just like a normal PHP hash or a JSON hash or whatever – you would then have the bank accounts, and then you'd have the the list of bank accounts within the embedded documents. Would I be correct in saying right. that, Mike? Right. That's that's exactly right. So, so when you can get away with it, when you can get away with embedding documents, it's also where you're going to see incredible performance advantages compared to a relational database query. Because rather than doing a query with a join to get all of the user's information plus their bank accounts and everything else, you're just doing one lookup for one user document that has all of the information you need already right there, locally, localized on disk. So, so that's one of the cases where you can really see order of magnitude improvement in performance. Right. Now, now what about, um, you know, with, with writing most web apps these days, uh, people are using one type of, of object relational mapper or another. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I guess people just write straight queries, but if you're using an, an object relational mapper, does the use of MongoDB sort of put you in a situation where you don't have to think about that very often? That it's because it, it almost seems like it would a lot of a lot of those issues, a lot of that sort of what do they call that impedance mismatch? 
um, between sort of the client side, your PHP, Python, Ruby objects, and the um, way it's stored in tables. Uh, if you're using Mongo and you're thinking of things in terms of documents, I would think it would be a little more of a natural um, right. back and forth. Right. So that's, yeah, that's one of the things that I think is so nice about the document model is that there is a lot less of an impedance mismatch between the objects that you're working with in your client code and the actual representation that the database sees. And, um, and, and that means that, first of all, a lot of people are using Mongo without what, just using the driver directly. So using the equivalent, what would be the equivalent of raw SQL, uh, with a relational database. I, I think it's the APIs tend to make things a little nicer to work with than working with raw SQL. Um, and because you can sort of take these nested objects, which you already have in your, in your client code and sort of just insert them as is, uh, there's a lot less of a mismatch. The other thing is that there's a bunch of projects that are working to provide basically ORM type functionality on top of these MongoDB drivers, maybe adding things like Things like models, uh, validation, client-side validation, that sort of stuff. And I think that actually implementing a project like that is probably a lot easier. It has a lot less complications on top of something like Mongo rather than on top of a relational database. Are there any tutorials out there that can help developers you know, transition into using Mongo? Because... You know, just reading about it and going, oh, hey, it's distributed, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't serve thing for you. But that's one thing to being sort of interested in it and seeing some, what some advantages might be. It's another to say, okay, well, if I want to build this next project using Mongo, I'd really like to see a, a very specific tutorial on like how I would build a, a sort of sophisticated web app with a significant object model on top of Mongo. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I can... I can sort of point you out to, to some resources that might be interesting. So for people who are just starting with Mongo, um, a great resource is try.mongodb.org. MongoDB, MongoDB.org is the main website for all MongoDB docs and information. But try.mongodb.org is actually a web-based shell that sort of gives you the experience of working with with MongoDB's command line shell without having to download anything or install anything. And it's actually got a nice little built-in tutorial. So for those of you listening who haven't played with Mongo, uh, this is really a, a com you know, completely zero, uh, zero investment way to, to play with it and, and just get a feel for it. So I'd recommend that. Then uh, to get to your real question about building more complex and you know advanced web applications, I think there's um, there's a growing amount of tutorials out there uh, in in various different languages. I know we have a at least one PhD tutorial on the MongoDB.org site. Um, in terms of how to go about developing more more complex applications, I think that. That one of the best examples, at least for me, is to look at uh, existing real-world projects that are using it. And, and there's a whole host of, of open-source projects that are actually using MongoDB. Um, I'm trying to think of some PHP ones. A, a nice one for Ruby is this project Shapado, S-H-A-P-A-D-O. And it's basically like an open-source Stack Overflow clone. And so I, so I think that checking out projects like that that are using Mongo might, might be a great source of information for how to actually build out your own, your own projects. 
Yeah, it seems like it would be um, extremely useful for transitioning to developers if they say, you know, because here's the thing. I mean, it's 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 one thing to go, okay, I hear you can build big projects in it. Okay, you're you're convinced that you know, I'm convinced that you can build you know significant projects on top of. I'm convinced that fast enough. I just don't know how to necessarily get there, and I'm not sure I want to spend the time doing it if I'm not if I'm worried that I'm going to find myself in a situation halfway through the project where all of a sudden these things that I think I might want to do or need to do all of a sudden I can't do very well or it's really hard. In which case, I'm like, screw it. I'm going back to the old way. So it'd be nice if there was like a, like I said, like a multi-step tutorial. Like remember the old days? I don't know if back in the C++, they'd have like these, the Scribble tutorial that Microsoft used to do. You'd walk you through building like a drawing application. Sure, um, sure. You know, just so you, you could kind of like, you could kind of browse through it. And go, okay, okay, yeah, I guess out of this. And then would, and then you could go step by step through it. So you, you, you could kind of jump ahead and understand how these more complex things are done. But you also knew that when you got to that point, you knew exactly. Okay, I go to chapter four, and that's how I do this thing with the toolbar and blah blah blah. So anyway, I'm just thinking, you know, if you guys don't have it, maybe one of our listeners, they could. That'd be a great opportunity to write some series of blog posts and get some serious Google love. Yeah, know? no, no, I think that's I think that's a great idea for a little bit more in depth uh, in depth look at look at things. Uh, again, I'd, I'd recommend to listeners to uh, to go ahead and actually you know download things and just start playing with it because I think that um, I'm not sure how much either of you guys have actually played with things, but I think that what you'll find is that uh, everything's fairly natural and and easy to get the hang of. So. Um, Mike, um, I've got something for you. Um, it, a number of times when I when I develop my PHP sites, um, when I'm doing optimization, one of the main techniques that I use is I will basically uh, cache a bunch of, you know, I'll, I'll maybe do a query such as that user example that we gave before where we've got user collection, bank accounts, email addresses, nicknames. I'll do a query on that and then I'll store it in a PHP session. So from that point forward, so it's such as when, you know, when a user logs in, then I've got in the session that information available to me without looking into the database. And from listening to you talk about it, I'm what I'm thinking is MongoDB essentially is kind of similar to that, but just without the database and then being able to query the the kind of objects. Is that is that a good kind of way of looking at it, a good way of thinking about it? Yeah, I'm trying to um trying to visualize what you're what you're talking about. So um certainly certainly MongoDB, a great use case for MongoDB is actually caching. So because we because we don't do joins, there's no need for something like a query cache, and and queries in MongoDB tend to be tend to be very fast on the order of on the order of queries in memcache, for example. Right. Um, I mean, so, essentially, so that's what I'm saying. Are, Is it like working with memcached but but with queries? Is that basically what it's about? Yeah. So, um, so I think that I think that. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's too far-fetched. Um, let me put it that way. So certainly for for primary key ID lookups, MongoDB is on the order of magnitude in terms of speed with with memcache. It's, a little, it's probably 10% slower than memcache for single key primary key lookups. But then, yeah, you have this nice, um, this nice query functionality. You have persistence you can have secondary indexes so i think yeah a lot of people are a lot of people are actually replacing multiple pieces of the stack you know maybe mysql and memcache with just mongodb so if if uh, it, it seems to me by talking but just hearing what you're saying that you could build a web app 
probably even easier than you using MongoDB, even easier than with a relational database. I mean, it's not like something like, okay, I have to have this, you know, really big distributed problem to even worry about. It's like, why not just start using MongoDB now? Because you, you have the speed of the memcache, so you can scale more easily without having to come up with these caching, complex ca caching solutions or buying more servers. I mean, is that right? I mean, is it ready that, you know, for prime time in that sense that people yeah. rather than just experimenting, you're like, hey, you know, I got this XYZ web app I'm going to build. Screw it. I'm doing a MongoDB, you know. Definitely. And, and we're seeing a lot of that. And, and that's one thing I, I tried to point out earlier is that scale is nice. And I, I think that once we get the auto sharding stuff, that's going to be a, a really great feature. But I think there's a lot of uh, reasons to use MongoDB that are sort of independent of that scale problem. Um, like you said, it's in a lot of ways, it can be easier to administer than, Mongo, than MySQL. It can be easier to get up and running than MySQL. It can be easier to work with as a developer. So I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of use case for that, and we're seeing a lot of that. So we keep a list of um, production deployments, people who are using who we know about using MongoDB in production on the website. So if you go to mongodb.org and search for production deployments, you'll see a a big list of people already using it in production. Uh, companies like SourceForge, New York Times, Discuss, GitHub are all on there. So, so there's definitely a lot of people using it, um, even without this scaling. Right, because you know, I, I guess there was some discussion of Facebook and um, Twitter moving over to Cassandra. Is that right? So, clearly. The you know the, the big sites are already looking for other answers than the traditional solutions, and I guess when MongoDB gets the the auto sharding and some of these other big time scaling features in, then you're going to be in the same you know same sort of ballpark as Cassandra is, I guess, in terms of scalability, right? Yeah, I, I think so. the The distribution models are a little bit a little bit subtly different uh, between between MongoDB and Cassandra. So Cassandra's distribution model is a little bit more similar to uh, Amazon's Dynamo and right. and MongoDB's sharding model can be thought of as pretty similar to Google's Bigtable or Yahoo's Peanuts. Um, so all of these things are, are are projects that there are papers out there describing. And uh, yeah, so MongoDB's sharding model is order preserving, which which you can read either of those papers and get get a little better idea of you know what that entails, I guess. Can you do one of the th one of the things the last time when we, we spoke to the guy from Cassandra, right? And one of the things that um we asked is 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 it possible to page through results? Um, I just wondered where, where MongoDB is with that. Yeah, sure. So um, we have there on on any query you can specify. Uh, a number of results to skip and a number of results to limit yourself to. So for basic paging, you can just use those skip and limit parameters to to get a single page of results. Um, if you there's some inconsistencies there, and 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 there can be some performance issues with using really large values of a skip, just like there are with with most other databases. So uh, for you know for really production setup, I, I would recommend not using that and basically doing a range query based on um, based on some value. So get keep keep record of the key for uh, a given page, what the what the highest value of that key is, and then on your next the query for the next page, do a range query for all documents greater with that key greater than the, the previous one. If I insert a new row into the system, is there any way to have like an auto increment value, for example, for every table? So once again, to help with this range stuff. 
Yeah, so by de by default, MongoDB doesn't do any um, auto-incrementing keys. And the reason for that is that, again, doing, doing an auto-increment is really tricky to get right in a distributed setup, in a sharded setup. Um, so by default, the primary key in MongoDB is this type that we call object ID. And that's a, that's a GUID, that's a globally unique uh, value. And it's constructed basically using a timestamp, uh, process ID, host name of the, of the node, and an, an incrementing value, um, just, a, just an atomic incrementing value on the on the client side so that id gets constructed on the client side but we know it's globally unique because of taking into account the host name and, and the process id um but the interesting thing about that id is that the timestamp comes first so if you just use that default id and you can use any other id if you know that it's unique but if you just use the default one uh you basically get an an inserted timestamp and the, the documents are going to be roughly sorted in insertion order when you when you sort on that primary key. Okay, that's cool. Okay, um, I, I guess a question I have about the use case. Another use case is text search. I mean, you know, with for relational databases, you obviously got to set up different types of full text search or use things like what Lucene or Sphinx. What are your options for MongoDB? Yeah, that's a good question. So. So the simplest, for, for, for very basic full-text search, one option with MongoDB is to basically take your document and add an array of keywords or tags or stemmed words uh, from, the, from the post or whatever and store that in the document. And then if you index on that, MongoDB has this multi-keys feature, which means when you index on an array, we actually key in the index, we key that document with each value in the array. So if you use that, that method, then you get sort of basic full text search. You can do, you know, and type queries. So give me all documents with the word tech and the word zing uh, in, their con in their tags array. And you can do that and, and leverage an index and it'll be fast. For more advanced full text search, um, I think, I think, the best bet right now, there's sort of nothing built in. I think what's going to happen moving forward is that we'll probably build in some very basic full text search functionality into uh, the server itself, and then we'll just we'll try to make sure that it's really easy to hook MongoDB up to things like Sphinx and Solar and Lucene, and and, and use those tools um, since those are you know first class full text search engines. Right. Um, what about if for administration, you know, with, with SQL, you know, or MySQL or SQL server, things like that, you, you kind of get administrative console where you can look at tables and, you know, test out queries and stuff like that. What is available for working with MongoDB other than just sort of using the shell? Yeah. So, so the shell is sort of the primary mode that most of us, uh, developers work with it. The shell is this JavaScript shell that comes with all MongoDB distributions, and it's basically a full JavaScript interpreter, plus it's a MongoDB client. So you can do queries, you can insert documents, you can run MongoDB commands. So, so it's really nice for doing that sort of thing. In terms of uh, a more GUI-type setup, there's been a bunch of community projects that have been trying to provide something like that. So 
A couple popular ones are this project called PHP Moedmin, um, this project called Mongo3, and what are some other ones? There's, I, I can actually shoot you guys a link to do a blog post that has all of them listed out there. I'll tell you what, um, we'll put that in the comments of the, of the, of the TechSync blog post. So if anyone just wants to go to TechSyncLive.com, have a look for this podcast. And within the, within the comments there, we'll have all of these links. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, but yes, so there are a bunch of projects. To be honest, I don't think that any one of those projects has sort of gained a, a critical mass yet. I think that most users are still sort of using the shell primarily to do administrative stuff. Um, but hopefully, you know, as time goes on, we'll keep seeing those mature and, and maybe see a clear leader come out and, and get some more contributions to that project. So... Mike, do you have right. any idea where this this time around the NoSQL movement originated from? Is it is it from the Amazon Simple DB stuff? Is that really the kind of where everyone started thinking about it, or do you think it's from something different? Well, I think um, sure. I think a lot of the interest uh, sort of dates back, or a lot of the citations go back to Google's Big Table paper and Amazon's Dynamo paper. So those are sort of required reading for anybody who wants to claim knowledge of, of the NoSQL field. Um, I think the, the term NoSQL was actually coined by Eric Evans, if I'm remembering correctly, um, before the first NoSQL conference, which was uh, in May, I think May of, of 2009 out in San Francisco. And, um, and it was basically a meetup of a bunch of these projects. And that's where the term NoSQL came about. And I think that's sort of where some of this critical mass started right around that time. People started to, you know, look more seriously at this stuff and, and get really interested in it. The um, one thing I'd like to ask a little bit about is the uh, is use, your use of Bison as a, instead of uh, JSON for storing your document. Now, was the reason for that because for doing the secondary indexes? So, if you're indexing into the document itself, if you if you have uh, if the indexes have you know say okay, well we're looking for this value within this document, then we know exactly how many bytes it is, or and what and what the offset is, so we can grab it. Is that what the reason, or can you tell us a little bit about your thinking and what? Yeah, sure. So, so Bison and and the the all the Bison's an open format. The the specification for it. And information about using it in different languages is all hosted at bson, B-S-O-N, spec.org. And the, the primary focuses with bson is basically three things. So the goal is to be a lightweight format. So um, most cases, it's either more efficient in terms of bytes than JSON. Uh, and if it's not more efficient, it's only a, a slight overhead. Um, and it depends on what types you're storing, uh, whether or not it's going to be more efficient or not. You mean efficiency um, just in terms of memory footprint, memory size? If, yeah, efficiency in terms of, of size. Okay. Um, another goal is for it to be traversable. So we do things like, yeah, first of all, for some types, like an int type, we know it's going to be four bytes. So when we want to skip past that field, we can just increment by four, the, the pointer by four. Um, we store the length of, of each document prefix at the beginning of the document. And that's, again, just so that if we want to skip over a document, we already know exactly how many bytes to jump ahead. So uh, throughout the spec, you'll see these, these little 
basically flags, these little pointers that tell you how long of a string is or something like that. And the reason for that is just to make sure that it's easy for the database to traverse these on documents, to do things like building indexes or looking for a field that, that we did a query on. And uh, sort of the, the last goal is for it to be uh, efficient in terms of time to encode. So we, we talked about space efficiency. We also want it to be really easy, really fast for people to encode to it and decode from it. So that's one of the reasons that we use pretty standard C types, which, which it tends to be really easy to uh, encode to in, in most programming languages. Right. I, you know, I, I had, done, had to write sort of my own, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a database so much as a, as a storage solution for um, storing trades. I was building an application several years ago for storing every trade that occurred for every stock you know, during a day, that's a lot of stuff, right? right. You can't, you cannot, and then trying to get that data out is is just a, a terrible job. Or a, for, it's it's just not a good fit for a relational database. You're trying to stick that into a table; it's a nightmare. It's super super slow. And if you're doing a query, say, hey, well, give me all the trades for you know two weeks back for for this particular stock, and I want it like you know in a in a tenth of a second or a hundredth of a second, you know. And if you, if you store if you store each file as sort of a binary file and it's just, you know, these, of these sort of fixed length, you know, binary records, then you can do that. Now, you know, is MongoDB a solution for that kind of thing, say storing these uh, huge, um, uh, I guess it become time series data as opposed to a relational database just falls apart or something like that? Because one of the things, it's not just requiring them, retrieving them very quickly, but it's also going to have to write them really fast because if you're collecting this stuff in real time, Pulling in, you know, every trade that's happening in real time, and you need to shove this into a, a database or onto the onto disk. I mean, how does right. MongoDB? I, I think that I think that second point is probably where MongoDB really shines. So, insert insert performance and update performance with MongoDB tends to be really really good. Um, and there's a there's a whole bunch of optimizations that we've made that that cause that behavior. But uh, I think that. That what we've seen because of that, as a result of that, is people are using MongoDB where they normally would think, oh, a database is too heavyweight for this. A database is too slow for this. Things like real-time analytics, uh, logging, real-time logging per request. And rather than you know writing that to a, an append-only flat file, you can just insert that into the database and then be able to query on it. And, and I think that... Uh, there's been some interesting use cases that have sort of fallen out of the fact that uh, real-time insert performance is so high. Yeah, well, logging is a really interesting, um, I think, example use case for that. Um, because you're right, yeah, you, logging is too, it's going to be too slow to write that to a database, to a relational database. Is the speed, well, I mean, what, if, you're, if, you're, if you were, say, logging, let's say you're logging to MongoDB as opposed to pending to a flat file, I mean, what, what are we talking about in terms of uh, speed uh, cost? I mean, are, is it twice as you know, twice as slow as is, is that, or it's in the ballpark, or what would you say? Um, well, you know, obviously it's going to depend on what, what exact alternative you're using. For, for small documents, I can do uh, north of 50,000 inserts per second on my laptop. So, mm -hmm. so things tend to be really fast um, for that sort of thing. Yeah, because I, I were, uh, you know, one one um, guy I'm working with uh, on this uh, one project, and he is he's using SQL Server for a lot of stuff, and it's just he's driving him nuts because he's like every morning he has to uh, import like this 400. Uh, it's just like a 400k 
you know, file, to, uh, like a CSV file, and it's taken SQL Server like 10 minutes. And he's, he's called in two SQL Server, ser, SQL Server like super gurus to come in, and no one can fix it. It's just, it takes forever. And it's just doing all those inserts or something. And if you're doing, a, a, you know, whatever, I mean, you know, a couple thousand inserts in MongoDB and it's instantaneous, and that sounds like it's a great solution for things like logging or, you know, or, or like pulling in a ton of data at one time. Yeah, lo- logging is definitely a sort of a first-class use case for for MongoDB. There's, it's it's really perfect for it. Um, we have this feature called capped collections, and what a capped collection is is when you can create a collection and give it a a fixed length, a fixed maximum size. Um, and and what will happen is that as you insert data, when you fill up the collection, when you reach that size it will just sort of wrap around and start overwriting the the you know the last the first documents that were inserted um right and so you basically get this automatic age out feature this automatic log rollover feature basically and uh and that's actually how the the log that we use for replication works internally but mm-hmm. it's also great you know for doing things like logging uh where it doesn't matter if you lose some of the old data, but you just want things to be fast and, and you don't want to have to worry about, you know, using up too much space or anything like that. Can I have a, just, just to slightly uh, take us on a different tangent, um, to talk about Tangent for a second and, and MongoDB. I was just wondering... Um, well, you're saying, t- you're saying Tangent? Yeah, ta- Tangent, yeah, the, the, the company. Tangent, right? It's Tangent. Uh, tangent, yeah, the, the tangent. company is yeah one zero G E N. Oh, ten gen. Oh, okay, ten gen. Right. I was, I was trying to figure out if you didn't know how, how to if you, if you had the wrong name or he was just your English accent. No, I, <laughs> I had the wrong name. I had the wrong name. Uh, so just what you know, I mean, I, I saw that um, CouchDB had had gotten some funding, and I just wondered, uh, is is MongoDB essentially funded? Is is ten gen funded? What's the deal with that? Are you bootstrapping it? What sorts of uh, yeah. So so we. Uh... We've done a couple rounds of uh, venture funding. So we did a round, uh, an A round with Union Square Ventures in 2008. And then in the end of 2009, we did a round again with Union Square and with Flybridge Capital. Nice. And, um, and so, yeah, so we've done, we've done those two rounds. We are actually, you know, currently offering support contracts and, and we have some customers and, uh, and that's going pretty well, but uh, yeah, we're, we're venture funded. Fantastic. So you're—I mean, I guess since MongoDB is is open source, then it's similar to a Red Hat type of model, uh, or, or or a MySQL type of model in terms of the revenue. Right. Yeah, you can think of it that way. I mean, I mean, the basic idea is that you know we think that that we are the the experts of MongoDB uh, right now, so we're just we're just trying to make sure that. The MongoDB ecosystem keeps growing, and uh, and you know there'll be there'll be opportunities to to make money through value add, uh, you know, down the road. You certainly are the experts of MongoDB if you're the people who make it. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're correct in thinking that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, another thing we were talking. I mean, I don't know whether this is in your your uh, job spec to talk about this stuff, but um, another thing we were talking about the other day, I was just discussing with Jason, is that sometimes open source companies will offer a warrantied version of the software for, you know, and, and that warrantied version can be another way of driving revenue. Um, but maybe, so yeah. warrant, warrantied meaning, 
I guess warranted meaning that you stand behind the actual product that you know if the, the, that the product isn't going to fail in the same way that if uh, I mean MySQL will do this they'll offer the warranted version of MySQL which means that they will stand behind what the the claims right. of the code what the right. code makes so yeah so I think um, you know right right now I mean I for for listeners out there I'll give you my personal warranty that uh, <laughs> that, that, that things things either work at, or if they don't work uh, I think you'll be hard pressed to find an, an open source project where you'll get uh, as good support and and response uh, from reporting issues or, or questions as you do from us so so I think we do a really great job of that um, but in terms of commercial offerings right now. You can go to tengen.com. Again, it's 10gen uh, slash support. And right now we're offering uh, three different support packages that you can see on there. And yeah, certainly I think, uh, you know, I'm not, I would not be the one making the, the decisions about what our future offerings are. But if, you know, if people were interested in, in, some, in a warranty like that, I think, you know, I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't... Uh, consider offering options like that down the road. Yeah, you know, because we, we, a few uh, episodes back, we uh, interviewed um, Jeff Haney from Accelerator, and they make one of their products they, is uh, called Titanium Mobile, where it allows you to build these iPhone and Android apps using JavaScript, and it's sure, yeah. native stuff, right? So, um, and, uh, so I'm building this project. I'm building an iPhone app with this thing, and, you know, there are some bugs, and the documentation is sparse, and, uh, you know, it's a little frustrating at times, but the product is so superior of a solution to writing native apps using Objective-C and Cocoa since I'm not an Objective-C Cocoa programmer. You know, I know right. JavaScript, so I'm like, great, show me your object model and I'll knock it out. So it's fantastic. But the fact that there are bugs and, and the documentation doesn't even completely describe the properties, methods, and events that are available, and you're just like, well, <laughs> okay, so what am I supposed to do here? Well, we've run into some problems, but what we did is... Um, you know, the guy uh, who's sponsoring the project just joined their premier developer thing or whatever, and it's a couple hundred dollars a month. And so when we say, hey, this is a bug, they're like, okay, we're on it. You know, they're going to knock it out ASAP because, you know, you're premium. Have you found that makes a difference, Jason, since you started working that way? You know, I mean, it's just been a couple of bugs, so I th I'm, I'm hoping it's going to make a difference. <laughs> I well, think it has. I, I think the first bug we reported a week ago was fixed, or they're like, we're rolling it out in the very next version. I think they're, they're rolling out versions like every couple weeks. But, um, We'll see. You know, we'll see. I mean, but at least if you're if you're developing a project on a new technology and it's and you can't get stuck in a situation where some core feature just flat out doesn't work. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, for, for the record, this is all going to be my my personal opinion and, and not really the uh, you know company spiel or anything like that. So don't hold this against Tengen if you take offense to or disagree with anything I say. But I, I think that. Um, there's certainly it's an interesting problem when you when you think about an open source project like this, where honestly I think we provide incredible support right now um, through Tengen, people working at Tengen, and and even you know community members on the mailing list and on IRC and and even over Twitter or whatever else. I think we we really do a great job of supporting our users, and these aren't. You know, may or may not be users who are paying us independently for support. Uh, these are just users reporting issues or, or having questions. And I think that, you know, when you offer paid support, there's sort of, uh, you know, an interesting question that arises, which is, you know, what's what's the value add there if you're already, 
giving away incredible support for free. And, uh, and it's an interesting question. And I think what, I think the answer to that question is going to be, you know, something that we work out over time. I, I think all of our support options, we, you know, we provide a, a phone access and, and 24 hour phone support, which is something that we certainly don't do on the mailing list right now. If, if a user just has a random question, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to think about. Wait, wait just let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm sorry, I may have missed that, but you, you actually find, you provide phone support for a, a for the papers. For, See, that's, for that's fantastic. I mean, I, I, as far as I know, Accelerator doesn't, and, and, you know, provide that. And, you know, there are a number of times that, like, we're, we're sitting there on a work session on a Saturday afternoon, and we're stuck because we've tried everything, the documentation doesn't support it, and we're like, well, you know, now what? <laughs> and it would be great if I could just call someone up. You know, we're paying and, and just say, can you just let me know what the status of this because we're going to have to completely change directions if this doesn't work. And if you guys provide that, that's a big deal. I can tell you what the value add is, Mike, there. I mean, because basically you're, you're still a very small, young company now and the amount of um, requests coming in are very, very low. But if you when you start to uh, get the kind of uh, level of requests that Twitter get for their API, for example, it's absolutely, you know, it's like 10,000 a day kind of thing. And sure. so that... So it's very, very hard for you to 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 turn around any kind of support um, in anything less than forty eight hours when you've got that many requests coming in. Um, so when people pay and they get the instant support, that's going to be a huge benefit for them. Yeah, well, I think you're. I think you're exactly right, Justin. I think that uh, you know, right right now, you know, let me be clear that the user list is very active as it is um, already, and and the. Um, and so it is, you know, it's a lot of work to keep up with it now. And, and I think that, you know, as we keep growing, there's, that's certainly going to, the, the level of support people get on the user list is sort, certainly going to have to degrade. I, I just don't see how that, that, that can keep scaling, um, scaling up with our you know, the number of users. You know, that, rem- that reminds me of an of a interview we did a, a, a few episodes back with um, Central Desktop. And they talked about how, you know, with their very first customers, you know, first the customers in the first six months or whatever. I mean, they could they could have an hour long conversation with the client, really getting to understand what their problems and issues were, what they wanted in features, and um, and knowing that obviously they weren't going to be doing that in two and three years down the road. But early on, it was important because a you're trying to understand what needs to be done with the product, but b those early customers that you make happy and solve their problems are really going to be your biggest evangelizers. So you know, you want to get those people really happy. So the fact that you guys Providing this really sort of top-level support and a lot of hand-holding and stuff is probably really going to help you guys get going. Because if, if, if someone gets out there and, and, and they want to say, we're going to take a risk and we're going to try this new technology, sounds cool, but yeah, it's, it's completely, it's going to be a big learning curve and we're going to have to really think about whether it's going to work. If, if they have someone there who's going to hold their hand and help them through and guarantee that, look, you got a problem, talk to us and we'll help you get through it, then you know, it's, it's worth the risk, I think. Yeah, no, I, I think that we've definitely seen that... Uh that there's been a lot of benefits to sort of providing the level of support that we have. Uh, you know, you'll see messages on, on Twitter or on the email list or whatever else that are, you know, expressing how grateful people are and how this is, you know, better than what they've seen in other projects or, or whatever else. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's definitely a really important thing to, uh, to focus on. Yeah. Um, Justin, I have a uh, a couple questions on a slightly different topic. Unless you, if you want to follow up any more with this, but I, I would like to ask a little bit about. Um, uh, oh, go on then. All right, all right. So, well, one. Um, so you're you guys are based out of New York City, is that right? Right. Yep. All of all of the Tengen, uh team is here in New York. 
so there seems to have been recently there seems to be kind of a a, a sort of a um I don't know, a center of gravity that's building in New York for startups, for technical startups. Um, you, I think, I, I, can't, I, I can't think of all the names. Squarespace is one that pops in my head, but I guess there's a whole bunch. And uh, what are you, what are your, what's your sense, what's your feel for the startup scene there? Are you guys in communication with the other startups? Is there sort of like a community that's growing? growing in yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's actually really great, uh, the startup scene here. So, Sure, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of other New York companies. There's you know, Guilt Group, uh, Bitly is in New York. Um, you know, I could go on and on with a, with a list of all these companies, and uh, and I think it's great. You know, you go to meetups, you go to tech meetups, you meet all these people from working on other startups, and um, I think it's been hard for a while in New York just because the the lure of uh, the financial industry has been so great that that I think it's sort of sucked a lot of talent uh, into finance. Right. But um, you know, who knows? I don't know if it's if it's just a resurgence in tech or if it's you know people getting jaded with with finance or what it is. But certainly, it seems to me, you know, on the ground level, that you know the number of startups in New York is increasing, and and there's a lot of really cool startups here too. So. So that's got to be kind of cool, and and I, I noticed that you know when I, I think I was taking a look at your blog a couple weeks ago, and it seems like you had moved around quite a bit. I think you were like in Texas and Cape Cod and and all over the place, right? So you're not necessarily a New York City native, right? Yeah, so I was uh, I was actually born in Albany, so I grew up in Albany, New York, which is a couple hours north of New York City. Um, and then yeah, I moved around a bit. Uh, I've been in New York for about two years now, New York City. Okay, and uh, are, now, you know, obviously, one of the things about New York City is it's so expensive, and uh, I guess one of the problems of doing a startup there is that you either have to live outside New York or you're really struggling, you know, with especially startup level uh, compensation. So how does that work out? I mean, you know, you're you probably have to get paid more in New York City just so you can pay for a place to live, as opposed to I guess a lot of other places in in the U.S. Yeah. So yeah, I think I mean. Obviously, if you have to pick, if you have to pick one thing that is holding back the startup industry, I think that would be it, right? So, cost of living is, you know, much higher in New York than it is elsewhere. So, you have to pay people more, um, you know, to have them to have happy employees here in New York. And uh, one point is that cost of living is an expensive, you know, out in Silicon Valley too. So, yeah, uh, yeah. It was just funny because last last episode we interviewed Pete uh, Mashad, who supports a family in four, four very comfortably for on like something five thousand dollars a month in Jacksonville, Florida, and you're just like, holy <laughs> smoke, that's living cheap, you know? <laughs> I mean, California, that's not going to happen, or at least you know, in right. L.A. and you know, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, places like that, I and mean, maybe you can live in the middle of San Joaquin Valley and live like that. But I, in New York, that's certainly not going to happen. Five thousand dollars a month, and you'd be you'd be in trouble. Maybe um, the startup should. Uh, I don't know, buy a building and then like house everyone in the same building and give them cheap rent. Yeah, the startup dormitory. <laughs> yeah. Startup you, right? You come here and we have like cheap, you know, it's like a hostel, like a like a hostel. Yeah, startup hostel, Michael exactly. Peter. You stay there for like two year, like a two year stint or a year stint at the uh, hostel and you have like a, these sort of, well, you know what I think was great about uh, college is that you'd have, when you lived in the, um, in the dorms, they'd have like the, uh, I don't know, like the, uh, the lounge area on every floor. So you'd get off the elevator, come back from, class or come up from the library and there'd be people hanging out, studying, talking, you know, and that's probably, that's what's so fun about all these tech meetups. You get to talk and share ideas and, and meet right. all these other people working on interesting stuff. 
And if it was like a startup hostel, <laughs> I mean, that would be awesome. Of course, you'd never get any work done. You'd probably go to sleep at four in the morning because you have talking all night like I used to in college, which is not I've just good. seen a, a weird reference on uh, Wikipedia, and I was just wondering if Mike knew anything about this. It says, this is for CouchDB. I clicked through to CouchDB because on um, MongoDB it said, see also CouchDB. And it said, CouchDB is most similar to other document stores like MongoDB and Lotus Notes. Do you know anything about that? Is Lotus Notes a... Something like yeah, so. So I think uh, CouchDB gets compared to Lotus Notes uh, specifically for the CouchDB has a strong emphasis on this master-master replication with um, with offline syncing. So you know, I might have a server that that I'm talking to, and I might have a local database that I'm inserting data into, and and they might be disconnected for a long time and, and rights might go to both. And then I, I bring them back online and I want them to, to sync up again. And I think that uh, if, I'm, if, I'm re- if I'm remembering correctly, that's similar to a lot of the functionality that you get with Lotus Notes. So I think they, you know, they get compared to that sometimes. Interesting. That's like the SMTP of the DB world. Very strange. Yeah, some, something like that. So, uh, so MongoDB, where replication MongoDB is, is really targeted just at master-slave, uh, more for traditional web app type, type development. So, uh, Mike, I'd like to ask you, when, sometimes we start out with this, I guess sometimes we end with it, uh, but I'd like to ask a little more about your background personally. I mean, you know, so working on this sort of database, the um, new database technology, I mean, do you have any specific sort of background in that or was it just like you developed your expertise as you guys were building out your cloud platform I mean, how you know what did you what did you know coming in and what how much of it did you just learn by figuring out as you needed to yeah I, I mean I had taken um, I had taken some undergraduate level database uh, courses at school mm-hmm. um, so I had a little bit of background in it but then yeah sure I think that um, you know over the time that we were working on the platform here I was actually not working on the database all that much, but I was I was working as uh, basically a client for the database. So I was developing um, uh, application libraries and that sort of stuff on that that interacted with the database. So I I got right. very familiar with it then, and then you know started to build out these drivers. And I I think a, a lot of it has been um, learning on the job, I guess. What was your What was your background in school? Where did you go, and what did you study? Uh, so I studied computer science at Princeton. Okay. So that's kind of like a little community college, right? Princeton yeah. <laughs> Community College? Right. I've heard of that. Uh, um, so uh, now when you came out of school, were, you know, what, did you go straight into the startup world or did you go to some big companies or consult? Or, yeah, I just like to, it's, sometimes it's interesting to I kind actually, of hear people's so, stories. So, so I actually started uh, here at Tengen. So Tengen was my first, uh, first job out of school. Uh-huh. Nice. And, uh, so yeah, I'm hoping to, hoping to hopefully stick at Tengen for a while, but definitely stick in the startup world. Um, I can't really see myself working at a big company. So you you never so you never suffered the big company suffering. You never went and had to have meeting after meeting after meeting cubicle hell. You no, had- every every time that that comes up in conversation, I just have to fake it. So, <laughs> what was your first language uh, working there in, in Tengen? Tengen. Uh, attention, uh, originally when I started at Tengen, most of the development was going on in JavaScript. Um, our, our application server was, um, 
it was server-side JavaScript was the first language that we supported. And then, you know, over time, as I was, while I was working here, we expanded that out and, and were supporting Ruby and Python and PHP as well. Um, but when I first started, most of the work I was doing was in JavaScript. Right. Interesting. And um, I'm trying to think, so Justin, do you have any, uh, any specific questions? I'm trying to think. Just the, yeah, just the, like the way JavaScript's taking over the world now. You know, with no JS. It's funny. I started using JavaScript for my uh, last project, um, you know, a few years back, which was, uh, you know, web-based version of PowerPoint, and it was all JavaScript. And uh, coming into it, I didn't know it that well. And it was funny. After, after I developed a certain amount of expertise in it, I started to prefer it to all these other languages I knew because it just seemed so quick to develop in it. And yeah. you'd hear people complain about, like, ah, it's this hacky crap language and all this stuff and i'm like well i don't, I don't know i like it <laughs> it's like yeah, no, I was... it's great because as you develop you can see it right it's like you it, it's like different to the desktop development paradigm where you have to compile every time you know so you i know it's compiling but it's just like it's so instant to sort of see what you do and that's what's great about it yeah no i i, I definitely like working in javascript i think there are a lot of uh there are a lot of things that sort of suck about it, to be frank. But um, you know, as you get used to them, they become like yeah. little quirky things that you actually don't mind so much. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think yeah. that's a, I think that's sort of the case with probably most languages or even technologies. Is that once you learn the shortcomings and you can manage them, you're like, okay, I accept them, right? right. Or whatever they are, and then you move on, and then you just sort of focus on the things you like about it. So no matter what language you have, or there's even the more recent languages that people are, are really excited about, I'm sure at some point people are like, oh, well, it doesn't do X, Y, and Z, and this sucks and that sucks. It's like, okay, well, fine. But once you get used to it and you get over that hump mentally or psychologically, then you just kind of... But you know, you know what really opened up JavaScript was Firebug, actually, because I remember developing JavaScript before Firebug, and it was just horrific. It was horrible. But then once you had Firebug, it just made it so easy. Yeah, I I, I, I I remember playing around with, I was building this uh, machine learning library, a, a genetic programming library, and, and I was like, ah, what should I do? Should I build this in, in, in .NET? I was thinking of building it, I started building it in C++, and, um, and I was like, well, should I do this in C Sharp? And I said, screw it, I just like debugging, I like writing the JavaScript and then debugging it <laughs> in Firefox. And I'm building this whole, gene you know, really sophisticated genetic programming library in JavaScript, I'm like, ah, it was easy. You know, it was much, I think, many fewer line, lines of code. And, of course, then you could share with everybody instantaneously if you want to. Yeah. You know, no, I, I think the most, sort of the most interesting thing about JavaScript now is how, we, how we're seeing it seep, you know, out of the browser and, and elsewhere. So yeah. server-side JavaScript, you know, MongoDB, for example, has an embedded JavaScript interpreter. Um, Places like that, game uh, scripting engines, the, the iPhone uh, app accelerator stuff. Sorry, MongoDB has an embedded JavaScript interpreter. Let's talk about that for a second. Well, how yeah. how would you how would you use that? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple ways that that gets used. So, so the first way that that gets used is, or one of the more important ways that gets used is for MapReduce. So MongoDB has MapReduce support for doing. Uh, aggregation, sort of complex aggregation type operations like uh, grouping and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and the way you represent your map and reduce queries is with JavaScript. Um, so you write, the, you write a JavaScript map function and JavaScript reduce function and those get evaluated on the server. 
there's also other ways you can use it. So you can store you can store JavaScript functions. You can evaluate arbitrary JavaScript on the server. So you can, you know, do a couple of different queries and maybe merge the results or or get the intersection of them or do some sort of complicated logic. Do it all on the do it all on the server side and then only get back the results of that. You're talking about stored procedures, basically. Yeah, so you can, I mean, you can store JavaScript functions and, and use them like stored procedures. Um, uh, why? I mean, that's, that, 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 to me, that's massive. I don't know why that isn't like highlighted on the front page. <laughs> that's such a big deal. That's um, very cool. That, yeah, that, that, very that cool. like amps up the power level of what you can do by about a million percent. <laughs> JavaScript stored procs in MongoDB. That is super cool. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with the, uh, with the built-in JavaScript interpreter, yeah. That is really cool. So I have a completely off-topic question to ask you. Um, I think, unless Justin, you want to follow up any more on the JavaScript? No, I'm sure. good. I'm good. So um, I, I was reading through your blog, and it said that you were, you were at least in one blog post, you were lamenting the fact that you couldn't find any decent pickup soccer in Cape Cod or something like that. That yeah, that was a while. That was a post from a long, long time ago. Um, but yeah, I was out. I was out in Cape Cod for a couple of weeks, and I couldn't find. Uh, I couldn't you, find any any pickup soccer out there. Are you a soccer player? Uh, did you play? Did you play college ball or just? Or I played. Just, yeah, I played uh, club soccer at school, and uh, I play as much as possible here. So I think I'm, you know, at least a fifty percent member of at least six different teams here in the city. <laughs> right now, so, well, uh, where do you play in New York City? I I, I one time um, in college we played. Uh, and New York University was in our conference, and we played, and and it was like this, you know, they have a turf field somewhere. in middle of the city where do you play pickup soccer is it central park is that the one place uh, well I, I have to say i honestly the the pickup soccer here is incredible i think of everywhere where i've lived new york has the best soccer uh atmosphere i can you know there's fields all over the place most of them are turf um but you can just go out there any time of day or night and there are going to be people playing the, you know you never have to scramble to find a game I guess that's New York City, right? Everything it's so dense, right? So you have that many millions of people on. Yeah, there's there's somebody. No matter how crazy you are, there's somebody else who's equally crazy out there. So right, it's twenty <laughs> degrees. It's like ten o'clock at night, and you're like, "Let's play." You're like, "All right, we've got twenty people. Let's go." Yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. great. Yeah, that's funny. I'm a soccer player myself, so uh, which I mentioned a couple. I've mentioned a couple times this podcast. So I was curious when I saw them. Like, ah, yeah, all right, soccer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, Justin, I, I think uh, I think. That's probably uh, makes a good show, right? I mean, do you yeah. have anything you want to ask? Uh, no, I think that's been good. We've we've covered a lot of the bases, and um, it certainly made me a lot more interested in MongoDB, considering that I actually didn't know very much about it before this interview. So I'm, I'm pretty much bored by it now. I think I I'm over <laughs> it. <laughs> no, no, it is. It's really cool. I, I I'm 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 going to start looking more into it in more detail because some of the questions I had about what may or may not be possible or or, or difficult to do, um, you seem to have answered. And uh, and and uh, so yeah, I think it'd be great to build a web app on top of MongoDB. Yeah, I would I would definitely check it out. And and that's what I try to I try to encourage people to you know if you have doubts or questions like that just just go ahead and uh try it out and play around with it a bit because i'm i'm sure that you'll uh i'm sure you'll probably find that uh everything everything you were trying to do there's a, a decent way to do it right now if we and if we can just get one of our listeners to write like a 10-part php tutorial on how to write an advanced web application using mongodb i'd be very happy Right yeah, you. hopefully, hopefully somebody out there will uh, t- pick up the baton on that one. Come on, somebody do it. <laughs> Save me the pain. 
Um, well, Mike, thank you very much for joining us. It's been excellent talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, I really guys. Appreciate great, you. great talking with you too. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, good luck with MongoDB. And uh, I have a feeling you might, uh, Jess and I will be some of your uh, early adopters. Great. Great. All Look right. forward to uh, seeing you guys on the mailing list. All right. All right. Well, that's a wrap. We're out. See, Mike, uh, Justin's a, a voice professional, so he's got to get prepped. Me, I, I, I'm just an amateur. <laughs> I don't even pretend to get ready or warm up or. So, do so what does uh, what does a voice professional entail? Um, it just means that you're a little, you know, you're not an amateur. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Better than me. In, the, in that case, I forgot to mention I'm also a voice professional, so you can uh, <laughs> you can mention that as well. Wait a minute! So I'm the only voice not <laughs> here. That sucks. <laughs>